Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. about now? There we go. As best I can remember, I was in the third grade at Yarbrough Elementary School in Auburn, Alabama. Having grown up in Auburn, I was just a little bit of an Auburn Athletics fan. Uh, And as you might be aware, uh, there is just like a small contentious rivalry uh, between Auburn and the University of Alabama. Well, the week of the Auburn and Alabama game in my third grade year, my elementary school uh, held a pep rally. And I mean, sure, technically, you could dress up in support of whatever team you wanted to. But come on, we're in Auburn, right? So like naturally, 99% of the students uh, dress up wearing Auburn orange and blue. But Mark, Mark, y'all, he was not wearing orange and blue. Mark was a boy in my grade And Mark had chosen to wear the vomit-inducing, morally repugnant colors of crimson and white. Alabama colors. And not only was Mark wearing crimson and white, Mark had made a sign. And while I don't, like, exactly remember, like, what was on the sign, in all likelihood, uh, it contained two words uh, that I can't bring myself to say, Uh, but rhyme with the words soul and died. (laughs) See what I did there? Yeah. The nerve, Mark, the nerve. And again, I need to emphasize that I was just like a little bit of an Auburn fan, just just a little bit. Um, And so in the middle of the pep rally, prompted by some of my other Auburn-supporting classmates, at least I I really hope that I was prompted, I walked over to Mark, pulled his sign out of his hands, and ripped it in half. It's confession this morning, folks. Now look, I need to tell you, like, in the moment, I felt like this was, like, the morally virtuous thing to do. Like, Like, I had fought back against evil and tyranny just a little bit, right? Well, after the fanaticism of that moment uh, faded away, which was kind of quickly ushered along by my teacher scolding me and telling me I better apologize, after that fanaticism uh, faded away, I was able to recognize that this was probably one of the meanest things that I had ever done. I wronged Mark that morning. I wronged Mark. And I can't guarantee it, but I suspect that if you had asked Mark later on that day, Mark, 
Who is someone that you have a hard time loving? I have to suspect that he would have not missed a beat and said, oh, Michael Waldron. No doubt. Good morning, once again. Uh, as I just said, uh, my name is Michael Waldrop. Uh, I promised I have not. I promise I have not torn someone's sign since that day. I've been improving. <laughs> Today is the final sermon uh, in a series uh, called "The Process of Love," uh, where we have been looking at how the first, uh, excuse me, uh, the New Testament book of First John uh, helps us love those who are hard to love. And as we continue on in this topic, I want uh, want to ask a question. That question is this. Why, why do we struggle to love those who we struggle to love? Why do we struggle to love those who we struggle to love? In other words, like what are the what are the reasons behind that struggle? And I would imagine that we could say like a number of things, right? Like a number of things could come to mind. But I think at least one of the main reasons that we would give is because those people that we struggle to love have in one way or another hurt us or wronged us, right? And, and for those of us here this morning who are, who are Jesus followers, we, we might even use a different word for, for those hurtful or, or like wrongful behaviors. We, we might use the word sin. And, and even if you're here with us this morning and, and you are not a follower of Jesus, and by the way, I just want to say thank you for being with us. Thank you for trusting us with your Sunday morning. We hope that you have felt welcomed here today. But even if you are not a follower of Jesus, you might use that word sin, right? So, so whoever we are, right, we might, we might talk about sin as, as these like hurtful, wrongful behaviors. I, I sinned against Mark that day when, when I tore his sign. It is, it is this sin in others' lives that hurts us, that makes it hard for us to love them. And this sin might look a lot of different ways. It might look like someone belittling you behind your back. It might look like a significant other cheating on you in a relationship. It might look like someone dehumanizing you through a political decision that they made or telling a harmful joke about you or simply through a complete lack of respect for who you are. It might look like greed or lust leading uh, one of your parents to make a decision that just tears your family apart. It might look like manipulation or abuse. It might look like any number of things, right? But whatever the sin may be, I suspect that for many of us, at the base of our love, excuse me, at the base of our struggle to love certain people is sin in those certain people's lives, right? There are many reasons we struggle to love other people, but but this is one of the main reasons that we have that struggle. And that is why our text for this morning is relevant to the question of how we love people who 
are hard to love. As we heard uh, Tim read a few moments ago, in, in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 16, John writes this, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Okay, thanks, John. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, if you're anything like me, like the first question you are asking uh, when you read this passage is, what, what, Michael, what is this sin that leads to death? Like, what, what is that? Well, uh, the short answer is, it's really hard to know. It's really hard to know. Uh, since the first couple centuries of the church, readers of this passage have debated the meaning uh, of that phrase, sin, the sin that leads to death. And presumably, the original audience uh, who was hearing this letter would have had a better idea uh, of what was being referred to. Uh, but for us, uh, it's hard to know. Uh, nonetheless, quickly, uh, here, here, are two here are two common options um, that are normally put forward. There are other options that are put forward, but these are two of the most common. Okay, number one, um, blasphemy. Uh, that should not say superiority, but, but it does. So just ignore that right there. Blasphemy. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know about y'all, but like blasphemy is one of those words that I'm always just like, okay, what exactly does that mean? It's just like one of those words that uh, I have a hard time getting my mind around. Um, so bl blasphemy basically is just uh, insulting God, being irreverent towards God, or, or uh, claiming things about God that are not true. So a, a couple times in the Gospels, Jesus talks about uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has like really hard language for this. He, he says, this, this is unforgivable, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And specifically in, in those passages, like what has happened is Jesus has like healed people or like driven demons out of people. And, and this other group of people looks at that work and says, oh, that is the work of Satan. And Jesus is like, you, you sure you want to go there? Right? Like you have literally just called the work of God the work of Satan. You, you have looked at a situation and said, no, that's, that is not God, that's Satan. Right? You, you have said something about the nature of God that it could not be further from the truth. Right? So, so that is blasphemy. So it's possible that when John says the sin that leads to death, um, that, that is possibly what he has in mind. So that's the first option. Uh, second option, Christians, and note that this is in quotes, uh, Christians, supposed Christians, denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. That is, denying that Jesus uh, had even had... Uh, a physical body. And that, that might seem like really particular to, particular to you, like why, why is that such a big deal? Uh, but this is one of the major reasons that John writes uh, this letter that we now call 1 John. He, he wrote it to push back against this group of supposed Christians who, who were saying that Jesus never had a physical body. Jesus was just like this, this spirit it just maybe seemed like he had a physical body, but, but he didn't really have a physical body. 
And, and more than likely, this belief flowed out of this faulty philosophy that said that the physical and, and material world was, was bad, was evil. And, and there are a couple things about all of that, that that are just like really not good. So first, like just that philosophy is, is just a rejection of God's good creation. Like we read in, in, the, in Genesis, uh, in the, the first book of the Bible, right? Like God makes the heavens and the earth. He makes the material universe. And then what does he do? He says, this is good. This is good. But, but even beyond that, and maybe even more importantly in, the, in this context, is in addition to this rejection of God's good physical creation, it would denying that Jesus had come in the flesh would, would be a denial of the gospel itself. It would be a denial of the good news. It would be a denial of the rescue that God offers the world in the physical body that Jesus came in. It would be a rejection of the gospel that as the book of John says, the word became what? The word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us who are made of flesh and gave his flesh on the cross that we might again dwell with God. So there you go. That's option number two. Uh, for what it's worth, I don't really have a preference between these two. I think they're both best to be avoided. I do have that preference. Um, but again, uh, it, it's hard to say uh, what John had in mind. But uh, if, you, if you got lost in, in all of that, uh, that, uh, come back. This is my point. Um, most importantly, while, it, while it's not exactly clear what, what John had in mind when, when he uses that phrase, the sin that leads to death, um, we, we can pretty confidently say it's likely to be something that is between a human and, and God. It's like human, human and God. It's pretty unlikely that it is a sin that's like human to human. Right? It's unlikely to be a sin uh, where like one human directly uh, hurts another human. The, the type of sin that then leads us to struggle to love one another. Sins like, like gossip or racism or theft or adultery or arrogance or manipulation or greed or, or whatever, right? The list could go on and on. In this passage, John says that if you see a brother or sister commit a sin like that, what should you do? Pray for them, and God will give them life. Pray, and God will give them life. That is quite the promise. That if those of us who are Jesus followers Pray for fellow believers who are sinning. God will give them life. That, that is, God will help them in their battle against that sin in their lives that is ultimately making it really hard for us to love them. Now, we need to say that this promise does not mean that, that God will necessarily immediately bring an end to sin in that person's life. Granted, Maybe God will. 
I, I suspect that there are even people in this room who, who have had an experience where it's just like God just like flips a switch and sin that they struggled with just like boom, it's gone. But while this, this promise isn't necessarily saying that God will do that, will bring that immediate into sin in a believer's life, this is a promise that God will help. That God will help. Even if God doesn't bring an end to that behavior in a person's life, God will give some amount of help. Think of it this way. Think of uh, that sin in a person's life like a, I don't know, like a 30-foot tall wall that's before them. And there's this obstacle they cannot get through, they, they cannot get past. This, this promise is not necessarily saying that God will just like immediately like lift them over the wall. Though, as I just said, sometimes I think God does that. But this promise is saying that God will give aid. Maybe he'll give a ladder. Maybe he'll give a bulldozer. Maybe a sledgehammer. I don't know. I don't know what it will look like, but God will give aid. And I know I just, uh, I feel that just saying that, like, there's a lot of loose ends there. This is not the perfect illustration. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of loose ends that I could talk about with prayer. Uh, but I, I will just say this, right? Uh, it's another matter entirely if the prayer, excuse me, if the person who we're praying for uses the aid that God provides, right? God can provide the ladder, but I don't think he's going to force someone to climb it. He can, he can give the sledgehammer. He's not going to... Um, He's not going to force someone to pick it up. But God will give aid. But a question, a question that I have, and, and perhaps you have too, is, but Michael, what, what, about, what about people who are not Christians whose sin is hurting me? Like, should, should I pray for them? And I'll just say that like this passage, admittedly, it, it seems very targeted at, at those who are following Jesus. However, uh, there are uh, other passages that have uh, a broader view and, and lead me to believe that uh, the same would be true for non-believers too if we, if we are praying for them. Uh, for example, a uh, famous passage in Mark, not Mark, Matthew 5, uh, in what we uh, call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he, he says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And there it is. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus instructs his followers to pray for those who persecute them. And, and perhaps I'm wrong, but to me it seems like a very odd thing for Jesus to instruct those of us who follow him to pray for those who persecute us if God had no intent of giving life to those that we are praying for whether they are believers or non-believers, I think it is very safe to say that God desires to give aid, to give life to whoever we pray for who is struggling with sin. So in summary, 
If we take both of these passages together, if we take 1 John 5 and we, and we take Matthew 5 together, we, we see this truth. One way we love those who are hard to love is through praying for them. One way we love those who are hard to love is through praying for them. And you might say, Michael, that seems like super oversimplistic. To which I would say, well, are you doing it? But I, I would also say that sometimes prayer is all that we can do for that person in our lives that we struggle to love. In some situations, a, per, a person might have hurt us so badly that it would not be healthy or appropriate for us to interact with them in person. In other situations, you might not even know the person, right? It, maybe it's a political figure or a celebrity that just like grates on your nerves, or you just, if you're honest, like you have built up bitterness and hate towards them. Prayer gives us a way of loving those people from afar. Or the situation might be different. Maybe you just have so much frustration towards someone that if you're honest, even if you can be with them in person, you're like, Michael, I just, I just don't have it in me to like show love to this person in a direct way. Again, prayer gives us somewhere to begin. It, 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 gives a, it allows us a first step that is hopefully followed by many other, other steps after that but it gives us a first step. Here's, here's one example uh, that, uh, that comes to mind for me. Uh, at the church uh, that I attended uh, between 2015 and 2018, every single Sunday, our entire congregation out loud would say the same prayer for whoever the president of the United States was. And, and so because it was between 2015 and 2018, what that meant is that some su Sundays we prayed for Barack Obama. And some Sundays we prayed for Donald Trump. And, and that prayer every single week for me and the rest of the congregation was, was this reminder. Was a reminder that like, oh yeah, this man is a human made in the image of God. God, would you give him life? Even if he drives me crazy, even if I disagree with him, even if choices he, he has made have, have hurt me, have hurt those I love, hurt my family, even if, I, even if I think that he is within the grip of sin, God, would you give him life? That's just one, one example uh, of what this might look like. Before I bring uh, this sermon to a close this morning, though, I, I need to just like add like one cautionary note. Um, because let's be real, like if we're not careful, this whole like praying for the sin uh, in the life of someone that we find it hard to love, like, Right, this could very easily become passive aggressive. Right? Like super easy. If we're not careful, we could very easily adopt a posture of superiority uh, or passive aggressiveness. Like, like, let me be clear. 
I'm not advocating that you walk out of church today and text that person in your small group or that person in your class at school and say, hey, person, I just want you to know I'm going to start praying for your tendency to gossip behind my back. Hope you have a great day, exclamation point. No, right? I'm not advocating that come tomorrow you walk into work and go up to that coworker and say, hey, coworker, I just want you to know, like this morning, like I started praying for you to be less of an arrogant jerk. Like, don't you feel less of an arrogant jerk already? This is so exciting. No, right? Please. Be on your guard against that type of thought or behavior. And I think just two quick things that I think are are a great assistance in us guarding against that sort of posture of superiority or passive aggressiveness. I think if we acknowledge two things, uh, we are really helped in that way. The first thing is this. If we acknowledge that we too are sinners whose sin has hurt other people. We too are sinners whose sin has hurt other people. Like you can, you can send that passive aggressive text, but you might get one right back that's like, oh, well, I'm praying for you for this reason, right? We all have sin in our lives that hurts others. That's the first thing. But second, we, we are less likely to have that posture of superiority or passive aggression uh, if we acknowledge that sin, whether it's in our lives or others' lives, flows out of suffering. Sin tends to flow out of suffering. Uh, as, as my friend uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, encourages us, uh, I wish he was my friend, but anyway, he's great. Uh, Dietrich says this, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. When we see the suffering that feeds into others' lives, we do not excuse their sin, but we are able to have more compassion for them. So, there are two things that I think Uh, are really helpful in us guarding against uh, passive aggression and and, um, and superiority. Okay, uh, to close this morning, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite Danny Champion up to the stage. Danny's going um, uh, to do our blessing for us this morning. Uh, but would you uh, would you pray for it with me? God, Father, Son, Spirit, would you grant us life? And would you grant life to those we struggle to love? Free them and free us from sin's destructive and divisive grip. Heal us of our wounds that we might love one another better. 
We ask this in the name of your Son who was wounded for us. Amen.